Well, good morning, church family. It is a, a strange morning, as we've said. In fact, uh, the scripture just disappeared off my iPad. I was so excited to have my iPad this morning because then if it was dark, I could still preach. Uh, I finally got it back up. You know, when your heart is rightly aligned with the Lord, you find that you can, you can accept any challenge. Uh, you, you, things don't have to knock you off center that closely. When I was uh, about a month ago, I had been wanting to go visit a guy who, uh, he owns a bow shop. And y'all know that I've been a bow hunter the last five or six years. I grew up hunting, but I didn't really start bow hunting until my brother got me into that, that sport of, a couple years ago. And there's a guy who, he owned Gateway Archery, which is down here on Beach Street. He had actually, he was from between Stephenville and Dublin, had been up here for a while, and now has uh, moved his shop back to Acton, just south of Granbury, to be close to his uh, mother and, and help care for her. This guy's an incredibly awesome Christian man, but he's also really, really awesome uh, in Bowtech. Uh, technology around bows, the new compound bows, and all that goes into that. And uh, the Lord had prompted my heart one uh, late, late one Thursday evening on, on, to get up on my the, the next one on my day off and just go see him. And it ended up being one of those appointments that only God could make. I went to visit with him. He was working on a guy's bow. And then when he got done with that, we spent a couple hours together. Now, this guy, I had never spent more than five minutes with him. But we started talking about the Lord he ordered lunch, had his wife bring me lunch and him lunch, and we, we prayed together three times, and it was just one of those God-ordained appointments. Well, when I first got there, the guy's bow that he was working on, and the guy had a problem with accuracy. His bow just wasn't on, and there's a, a technique that these guys will use. It's called paper tuning, where they shoot an arrow through a piece of paper, and it should make a perfect hole and, uh, and not tear up the paper too much. Well, that guy, when he would shoot an arrow through it, the arrow was going through sideways. And, and so this, the, the expert, Jim, he knew what the issue was almost immediately. So he takes the guy's bow, and, it, it, those, and you've seen, you know what a bow is. And so whether you're into archery and the new compound bows and all that, you can see it in your mind. There's a little wheel at the top and bottom on those compound bows, and they're called cams. And he looked at that, and one of the cams was microscopically out of alignment. And he took it apart, and he took a little bitty bushing, probably less than, than uh, uh, thousandths of an inch, and he moved that cam over slightly. And then he took that, that bow back out and shot it through the paper, and it was perfect. It was dead on. But the reason that it was off to begin with is because the bow, the cams, were out of alignment. And I'd suggest to you that one of the reasons that we have a hard time with God's instruction, with his word, more often than not, when God speaks to us about practical everyday things in life, it's because our heart is not in alignment with his. When our heart is in alignment, we don't mind going to his word. We don't mind spending time uh, hearing him speak to us. But if our heart is out of alignment and, and it is not in line with God's heart, we end up wincing sometimes at God's directives. And we're in a difficult section of 1 Peter. We've been walking through 1 Peter. Peter, as we've, we've set this up, was the church's first pastor. Uh, we, we looked at his restoration when God uh, restored Peter 
uh, after Peter had denied him and told him, shepherd my sheep. And that's what Peter began doing in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. He started shepherding the sheep. He was the first pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. Eventually, uh, those duties were turned over to James, the brother of Jesus. But in the early part of Acts, Peter's the first pastor. This letter that Peter is writing, it is to Christians who probably were there early on in his Jerusalem church who've been scattered throughout the land due to persecution. And so Peter is writing really a pastoral letter to people who are no longer in his immediate vicinity, but he still considers them his children in the faith, his, his flock, so to speak, that are scattered abroad. And then we come to this section where Peter deals with this difficult issue of submission. We spent a couple weeks here because we talked about Peter's directives that we are to submit to the governing authorities, that we are to submit to our employers, we're to submit to those who are placed in authority over us. And then last week we looked at the pinnacle, the peak of that directive on submission when Peter told us that we are to follow Christ's example. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, where he's, he then makes that application of what a submissive heart looks like within a marriage relationship, within a home. I want to read last week's passage because I don't, we, we, we really need that context before we get to this week's. So last week's passage started in chapter 2, verse 21. The scripture says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when he was insulted. He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter it gives us Christ's example of how we should have humble, submissive hearts. He, he, preceding that, of course, he talked about the rulers and governing authorities. Then he talked about the household slaves and submitting to masters. And then he says, the reason I'm calling you to have a heart of submission as you live your life out in this lost world is because Christ is your example. And if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, it means you're going to follow him. You're going to follow the example of Christ. Your heart is going to be aligned with his heart. We, we talked about how you don't have to teach uh, kids to be rebellious, right? Rebellion tends to, to, to rise up in us. That sin rises up in us because it's a part of the human flesh and part of human nature. But Peter is reminding us that as believers, if we're going to be followers of Christ, we need to be a people who have a heart of submission. And so then we come to this week in uh, chapter 3, First uh, Peter, in verses 1 through 7, and Peter is going to make application of this principle, having a heart aligned with Christ to the marriage relationship. Now, let's go ahead and read the text. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Do not let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart. 
the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I'll admit that because of the culture we live in, and because I've been raised in a culture of uh, a, a tremendous amount of feminist theology even, even reading some of those words of Scripture, I make you cringe a little bit. I, I used to joke with Susan about this. I'll just remind Susan, Susan, remember, Sarah called Abraham Lord. That's never worked well with my wife. I don't think she's called me Lord once. Okay? That is not the intent of this text. And I hope that as we walk through it, I'm able to, uh, we can walk through it together. But let's, let's be honest with the text, okay? Scripture here is not ambiguous in the fact that it is calling on husbands and wives to live in a relationship with one another with a heart of submission, with a submissive heart, a heart that is aligned with Christ that seeks to follow Christ. So there's two general observations that I want you to have. The first one comes from the very word that is used when he introduces his instructions to wives and his instructions to, to uh, husbands. In both cases, when he introduces those sections, he uses a word called hamoyo, hamoyos, and it's translated in our CSB as likewise or in the same way in the CSB. Other versions will translate it likewise. So the question that, that scholars will argue over is in the same way as what? I believe that because this immediately follows his, the, what I see as the pinnacle of his instruction on submission and discipleship, when he says in the same way wives and when he says in the same way husbands, he's pointing us back to Christ. Just as Christ lived with a heart of submission and a heart of service, so also all wives in their relationship with their husband live with a heart of submission and a heart of service. And husbands in the same way Point back to Christ. You ought to treat your wife as Christ treated you and as he treated the church. Now, not only do I believe that that is the, the, the truth and how that word ought to be interpreted in this immediate context, in the New Testament context, it bears out. Jesus, I mean, Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he tells wives to submit to their husbands, when he gets to the husbands, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He was willing to die for her, to lay down his life for the church. And that's exactly what Peter's pointing back to with a little bit of a different language here than what Paul used. And so ultimately, the idea is that husbands and wives ought to be like Christ to each other with submission and service. Now, this also suggests This'll, this could get me in a little bit of trouble. Man, uh, that, oh, that clock is off. It is not 1250. 
I know I hadn't been preaching that long. Good Lord. We're not going by that clock. Get, get my thoughts back in order. You notice he does give six verses here to the wives and only one to the husband. There's a lot of theories about that. A uh, theory that I heard in Sunday school this morning was that men won't pay attention that long to listen to six verses. So he has to pack it all into one. You know, there's all kinds of jokes that we can tell about that, but, but it, there, there's a, a, another truism here that I want you to understand. God created men and women differently and husbands and wives serve unique roles within God's family structure, okay? God created men and women uniquely and complementary. He tells us when we, when we studied Genesis not too long ago, we looked at Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, and, and when God created Eve, God said she complements Adam. They, they are complementary. They, they come together and, and work together. That is both physically, very clearly by biology. Men and women are created different physically. We're going to see a little bit of that in this text. When, when he refers to women as the weaker sex, he's not talking about emotions. He's talking about physical attributes by and large. And, and you know, you can always find exceptions. I know that there are some, some big Russian women that can lift more weight than me. All right. But by and large, God created men and women differently and uniquely to complement one another in a marriage relationship. Because we are created differently, he has different roles also for men and women within the marriage relationship. Husbands and wives are unique in our creation and how God put us together. And that requires some extra work in a marriage. I'm I mentioned it last week. Here we are at this text, and right now I'm walking through uh, pre-marriage counseling with two young couples. And one of the things that I, I always talk about, no matter whether I have one session of pre-marriage counseling or six or seven, one of the things we talk about is God, God gave you as a husband different needs than what he gives your wife. You have different emotional needs. You have different desires. And the, one of the problems that, that creates issues in a marriage is I think that this is what I need, so I project that on her, and I try to meet, I try to love her like I want to be loved. Well, it doesn't work that way. I have to realize that she's created different than me. I need to learn what she needs, and true love is going to submit my desire and my will to love her and meet her needs. And that goes both ways because we are created uniquely we're different, and our needs are different. So then he gets into, uh, we'll just get into real quickly the, some of the, the instructions that he gives. To the wives, he gives really three broad instructions. The first one is submit yourselves to your own husbands. It sounds almost repetitive, but basically Peter is saying, you've got one husband. This is not in order for wives to submit to men generically. We're not talking about, in, in, those, in that language, I'm not talking about in, the, in the, the church or in the family. There's roles that God prescribes for us within churches, there's roles that God prescribes of us within the family order, but here we're just talking about the family. And, and scripture says that the wives to submit to her own husband. That doesn't mean she's supposed to submit somebody else's husband just because he's a man. 
This is not about men being superior or women being inferior in any way. This is about order within the, within the body of, of Christ and within the home. And in fact, I want you to remember that he's speaking to Christian wives here, okay? And so Christian wives, if you're gonna follow Christ, you're gonna submit and you're gonna function with a heart of, of respect and love and submission to your husband. Even if he does something wrong, now, we're not talking about abuse here, but we're talking about there's not a perfect man in the world and there's no perfect woman in the world. So just because one of you does something wrong, that doesn't give you an excuse to go out and live in sin or to reject the position that God has placed you in. Even if some disobey the word so that they might be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe their pure and reverent life. So ultimately, the focus here and I may come back to this several times with each one of these instructions. The focus for the wife is to align your heart with Christ. Align your heart with the word of God. Become a, a follower, a disciple of Christ in how you serve and love your husband so that even if your husband is outside of the faith, now remember, he's, he's talking to a lot of women who had come to faith and their husband hadn't yet. He's not telling them to abandon the relationship. But he's telling them, you, you live within that marriage and love him that, that as they observe, observe your pure and reverent lives, they might come to faith in Christ. So what is the most important thing that he is he's communicating here? That those wives, even in those difficult positions, have their hearts and their minds aligned toward eternity, toward Christ, instead of just the things on this earth. You're going to see that as a theme because the next thing that he encourages wives to do in a Christian marriage is to not spend all their time focusing on outward beauty, but to make sure that they're focusing on their inner beauty. Now, why does he do that? Does he, he is not disallowing here uh, women to wear gold or to fix their hair, but he's, he's encouraging Christian wives to make sure that you, you focus more on issues of the heart than external things. Once again, I would argue that what Peter's encouraging the Christian wives to do is major on the things that align our heart with Christ, that align our heart toward eternal things, not short-term things. And we'll back up because one of Peter's themes through chapter one and chapter two has been that in Christ, we have been given eternity. We have an inheritance that is incomparable, an inheritance that is indestructible, an inheritance in Christ that is undefiled. We have an eternity. We have something to look forward to that is going to last forever. And our focus ought to be more aligned with eternity than it is the things of this world. So when you, when you look at those first two instructions, as he is encouraging a Christian wife to submit to her, her husband so that he might gain eternal life, even if he isn't saved, when you see Peter encouraging the Christian wife to focus on things of the heart instead of things of the flesh, once again, Peter's taking us back to that, that, that primary argument that he's making that eternity and what we have in Christ is more important than anything that we have on this earth. You remember, even all the way back when he talked about suffering, he, he told us to rejoice in suffering because when you suffer, your faith is being purified just as God 
purifies, or, or as, as gold would be purified, God will purify your faith for the glory of eternity. Because eternity, what you gain in eternity, is far more important than what you have in this world. And third, as, as we look at that, uh, the, the next step there, Peter says, do good and, and don't fear. For in the past, the holy women put their hope where? In God. Not adorning themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear. I, there's, a, there's a weird Greek group of words there when he says, do not fear the things that cause fear, essentially. Do not fear things that are fearful. How is it that we can walk through the struggles of this life when sometimes life gets really, really tough and stand tall with our, with our hearts aligned with God's heart and not fear? I'm, I'm going to point back to something we talked about last week. Uh, as Susan and I face difficult, challenging times, in particular with our daughter, Katie, who I know we have a couple of people that are visiting today for the first time. Uh, I don't want to be too repetitive, but our daughter passed away when she was 14 years, 11 months old after a long time of uh, physical struggles. In the last 15 months, we knew that there was a time clock, that she was, that she was dying, that she was going to pass away. And even Katie, when we talked about that circumstance, told me that she wasn't afraid. Now, imagine that. A 14-year-old girl, when I, I asked her, I said, Katie, do you realize what the doctors were saying when we left the hospital today? And she said, yeah, Dad, I don't have long left to live. And when I, I asked her, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you okay with that? And I don't remember the exact words, but, but she said, I'm okay because I know I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm worried about you and Mom, and I'm going to miss y'all. And when I asked her, how do you know you're going to be okay, Katie? She said, because I'm, I know Jesus is going to come get me. I, I can't imagine that Katie had no trepidation, but she was not living in fear because she was living in view of eternity. And when our hearts are aligned with Christ, whether we're 14 or whether we're 84, we don't have to fear anything from this world if our hearts are aligned with Christ. This week, as some of you, if you want to go find it, uh, I put out on Facebook, I shared a YouTube video. Um, uh, many of you have heard of Frank Harbor before. Frank Harbor was a lawyer before he became a pastor, and he does a Defending the Faith video podcast. And it's also out on Spotify, and he simply interviewed me for 30 minutes telling Katie's story. I would encourage you because I, I've had a chance to go back and listen to it. And uh, of course, I cried when I listened to it. But uh, it was very encouraging to me because it was such a reminder that no matter how tough things got, the Lord was with us. Every step of the way, he was with us. I know that when we get our mind distracted and our hearts aren't aligned correctly with Christ, that's when we can get off track, especially during the tough times. But he, here Peter's given this admonition to Christian wives. You don't have to fear fearful things. 
When you're walking in a relationship with the Lord, you're doing good. You're doing what the, what God has called you to do, and you're walking with Him. You don't have to fear fearful things. When your heart is aligned with Christ and your focus is on Him, it's focused on things of eternity that matter far more than little things in this world. We're going to come back and, and give you an overview in a mo moment, but then Peter gets to verse 7 where he gives instructions to husbands. Let me read it, and then we're going to look at a couple things here. Uh, once again, he says, husbands, in the same way, and I believe that that word is pointing us back to Christ. In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers would not be hindered. There is a lot packed in to this one verse, and, and I wanted to, to try to unpack it a little bit. I spent a lot of time just asking the Lord to give me some clarity on, on how to communicate this, because there's, the first thing that I want you to see here is he uses this word uh, gnosis or gnosin, which means it's the Greek word for knowledge. It's translated in the CSB understanding. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Why would he say that? Now, much of my life, especially hanging around other husbands, you hear people joke about, I just don't understand her. I just don't get it. I don't know why she thinks this way. Uh, it's, it's been a, a, a little bit comical um, getting to, you know, walking with Nathan through this. He's been married a little over two years. And, and he, we'll talk about this a little bit. He goes, you know, I, I used to hear that people would you know, talk about the differences between men and women. He said, I didn't see that as much until I got married. And then I began to understand, yeah, we are different. There's differences here in, in how we respond to each other and how we react. One of the, the key points that I want to communicate in any marriage or pre-marriage counseling I do is that if you're going to love your wife well, you're going to do everything you can to understand what her needs are. Because you can't meet her needs if you don't know what her needs are. Now, that might be as simple as asking her. I had one guy tell me, yeah, but if I ask, she talks a lot. You know why? Because one of her top needs is she needs her husband to listen to her. She needs you to listen. In the, the book that I, that I use, His Needs, Her Needs, in the top five needs that women need to, to, re, to, to feel emotionally fulfilled in the marriage, number two is a husband who will listen. Number two. And, and when you go back and read uh, that Harley's book, after this is after decades of marriage counseling that, that he worked through and developed uh, his understanding, those top two on each side, the top two things that men need and the top two things that women need are almost universal within a marriage. I know that there's, you can always talk about exceptions. There's, there's some women who are different here, some women who are different there. And in the top five needs, you'll see number three, four, and five move around a lot. Susan will tell you uh, that the, he lists the number five need for men as uh, feeling respected. Susan will tell you that's further up the list for me uh, 
if, if, if I leave here and she tells me I preached a horrible sermon, my day is ruined. I get have 50 people tell me I did a good job. I have an, a, a need to know that she respects me. And that's one of the, the, that's the fifth on Harley's list. It's probably higher up than me, but for the number one and number two on both sides are almost universal and they're pretty well non-negotiable. Your wife needs you to listen to her. If you will listen, you may learn what her needs are. Now, I'll, I'll admit that there's some of us who really don't know why we get upset and what our needs are and why our emotional needs aren't being met. And so sometimes that's where it helps you to sit down and meet with somebody else and talk about those things is once you begin to talk about them, you'll figure it out. But here's the point, guys. You've got to learn what her needs are. If you're going to live with her in an understanding way, you got to know what you got to know what's going on. You got to know what her emotional needs are. Well, what if it doesn't make sense to me? Who cares? I had one guy tell me, he said, well, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why she needs that type of affection or why, why she needs this or she needs that. And for me to, to try to meet those needs and for me to do those things for her, I feel like I'm playing a game. I looked him square in the eye and said, it's a game worth playing. Because if you don't, the reason you don't understand why she needs that is because that's not what you need. You've got to make a decision that regardless of what I feel and what I need, my goal is going to be to love her well. And to love her well, I have to understand her needs. I have to live with her in an understanding way, with knowledge. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm just swinging blind. And, and maybe you get lucky and maybe you don't. Live with her in an understanding way. Learn what she needs and then second to that, meet those needs. Do it. Whatever, whatever it is that, that, that she needs to be fulfilled in a marriage, make the sacrifices to meet those needs. Now, this goes both ways. Because if we are sacrificially serving one another, we're really being Jesus to each other. And if I'm sacrificially serving her, trying to meet her needs, she feels that, she understands that, and her desire is to sacrificially serve me and what my needs are in a marriage. And ultimately, when you, when you take that approach and you make that your goal, so the goal when, when somebody gets married is not to, I'm going to get married, so I'll be happy. Your goal ought to be, I'm getting married. God has placed me in this covenant relationship and my job is to make her happy, to meet her needs as best I can. And if she's doing the same thing, then you have a marriage that flourishes because you're serving one another from a submissive spirit, from a submissive heart as Christ served us and as he died for us. So the, the, the hope, it, it, it's, it's curious, he doesn't tell women to serve their Husbands are live with them in an understanding way because it's kind of natural for them to want to understand us. I'm not saying they're all, there's nobody perfect here. There's no perfect marriages. There's no per perfect husbands and wives. We're all on this journey together. But it tends to be the men who think, well, you know, I just don't understand her. I don't know what to do about it. And then they don't work on it. He commands men to live with knowledge, to live with her in an understanding way. And then second, I retitled this point several 
several different times. He says, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. The word that's translated uh, honor there, to show honor, is a word that oftentimes is translated value, to give value to, to treat as valuable. And so when he tells us, show your wife honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, preceding that, he says, as with a weaker partner. There's a couple things that, that, that come to mind here. Uh, the first one is, we, we dealt with the, the, the issue of, you know, what's it mean she's a weaker, uh, that the wife is a weaker partner? I believe that, that Peter is very clearly just talking about physical attributes here. It, you, you, you know, take a hundred men and a hundred women and, and have them go just randomly pick, pick them out of a crowd and have them go lift weights. The men are going to lift more weight than women. Men are going to run faster than women. That's why we're having this crazy argument that nobody would ever thought we were going to have in our culture right now about whether biological men should be able to be able to compete in women's sports. We're created differently. And, and God created women with, with, with different bodies than what he created men. And in some ways, they're a whole lot tougher. Uh, I've watched my wife give birth four times. I don't want to go through that, Okay. But my wife doesn't want to put on a football helmet and go out and, and you know, play football uh, with the guys because he's created us differently. Because she is weaker, it requires special attention from the men to care for and to watch over his wife as he takes care of her. With this in mind, that she is of great value. She is precious and she is valuable. The word uh, tamain there holds that, that idea that we, need to, that we need to see our wives, not just as someone who has a weaker flesh or weaker body, but someone who is very precious and who is very, very valuable. Dr. Rainey had used the example way back when I was in college, so back in the 1980s, of, of how you would treat a very precious vase from China that may be worth, or, or crystal vase, that may be worth thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. You wouldn't set it on the floor next to the door. You wouldn't put it on the coffee table where, where grandkids could knock it over. You would take that precious vase and probably, if, if you're going to display it in your home, it would be in a place of honor and a place where it was protected more than likely, you're going to put it somewhere where it was greatly protected. It might be in a museum somewhere with glass, an, an impenetrable glass around it so that it can't be broken, it can't be destroyed. The picture that Christ gives us here for husbands and how we treat our wives is to treat them with that kind of honor, that kind of respect, that kind of value, because that's the value that God says they hold in our marriage and in our lives. Honor her as precious and valuable. And this is where he comes back full circle. Honor her as a co-heir in the grace of life. Co-heir in the faith. Now, our culture probably doesn't have as big of a, a struggle here as they might have in the Jewish culture, especially in the Roman culture 2,000 years ago. 
where, where their wives had simply weren't given the same value in the church or in, in, in a community as Peter's telling us that we should. Because guys, she's going to live forever. That truck you want to buy is not going to be around much longer. That boat that you want is going to have a shelf life. The best house that you could build is temporary, especially in light of eternity. But that precious wife that God has placed in your life, in your care, is eternal. She's a co-heir of eternity with you. And because of that, we need to keep our hearts and our minds aligned with Christ in remembering what is eternal and what is temporary. Why is that so, so important in a marriage relationship? Because the most intimate, really, if God blesses you with a gift of marriage, and he does in everyone, Paul, Paul speaks of the gift of singleness that he, that he held on to. And we're not trying to solve all of the issues about what scripture says about marriage and singleness and all that here. But if God has blessed you with a gift of a spouse, he has blessed you with the most intimate relationship that anyone can ever have on the face of this earth. They know you. They know your walk with the Lord and you know their walk with the Lord. You're in it together. When you're a husband and wife and you're walking through this, this world together, God has a very special calling and a very special blessing that he has placed on marriage. And it's not just temporary. How you treat your husband, wives, and husbands, how you treat your wives has an eternal impact, not just on them, but on your children, if the Lord blesses you with them, on your grandchildren, and on everybody around you who's watching. To the extent that in Ephesians chapter 5, God even uses the, the marriage relationship as an illustration for his love for the church. That's how valuable the, the marriage between a husband and wife, a Christian marriage, is in God's eyes. And he calls us to love one another the way that he loved his church by giving up himself and giving up his life for us. If we are going to fulfill God's purpose for his kingdom and he has given you a spouse, you're not going to do it on your own. He sent you someone to compliment you, to come alongside you, husbands and wives, that we can serve one another, love one another, to fulfill the purpose that God has for us in this world and put that on display through the most valuable, intimate relationship that he has placed on the face of this earth. The struggle, as I come to the end of this text, is there's a lot to say here about husbands and wives, but I don't want you to miss the point. Because husbands, how you treat your wife has an eternal impact. And it's a picture of Jesus' love for his church. Wives, how you treat your husbands, how you love them has an eternal impact. And it's an image 
of Christ's love for his church. As Christ gave up his life for his church in the same way, wives submit to your husbands and husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. If you want to get a great picture of Jesus's love, look to some good, godly Christian marriages. Men who are willing to sacrifice for their wives. Women who are willing to sacrifice for their husbands because they love them so much. I've had the privilege of watching some of these, even marriages that have lasted 50, 60, 70 years, especially when we come to the end of life. Husbands that will sacrificially serve even when there's nothing nothing left in it for them wives who will sacrificially serve why because they made a commitment they made a promise to love to show the love of christ every step of the way that's who god's called us to be you've been listening to a sunday morning message from our services here at first baptist wataga our family's mission is to exalt the savior equip the saints and evangelize the lost If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.